Isaiah 40 makes such a change in the book that, I don't know, for 200 years now, most scholars, which sadly doesn't mean Christians, these are men who go to church and study the Bible and teach on the Bible and write books on the Bible, but often don't believe the Bible. Uh, most scholars think that there are two books of Isaiah. They talk about it. First Isaiah, second Isaiah. First Isaiah is chapter 1 to 39. Second Isaiah is chapter 40 to 66. Um, they're wrong, but they're not wrong. They're absolutely right in seeing that there's a there's a linchpin. There's a change in the book at chapter 39. And, you know, you have to be an idiot to miss it. Chapter 37 through 39 is a story. Isaiah has been preaching as if he were preaching all the time up to the story of the nigh destruction of Jerusalem by the armies of Sennacherib of Assyria under the guidance of the Rabshakeh. We just did this a couple weeks ago, right? Rabshakeh is out there shouting in Hebrew, no, even God can't save you, <laughs> right? And, and that's the famous last words, right? Um, God comes and, and saves them. Now, Hezekiah has been praying according to Isaiah's counsel rather than sending emissaries to Egypt, which looks powerful and promises form an alliance and will stop Assyria together. Hezekiah does not do that. And in fact, Sennacherib is planning to destroy Egypt and sends a contingent to destroy Hezekiah. doesn't even give the whole army to Jerusalem. But again, uh, the Rabshakeh spoke too quickly. And God sends the angels to destroy the little contingent. They flee back to the main army, and there's bad news at home. And I, I think I just said this again two weeks ago. Sennacherib will flee home at news of trouble and in the temple of his God be struck down by his own sons. And Assyria won't last long. Nebuchadnezzar will conquer Nineveh, where Sennacherib ran to the temple, uh, in 612. It's just a little ways away, a generation and a half or so. Hezekiah's kingdom, golden, right? You got some time for Josiah's kingdom, golden. Right? Maybe it's three generations there, right? Uh, so, but Isaiah, knowing all of that that happened, being the prophet of God still embarks on a new message right after the salvation of Jerusalem. And that new message is chapters 40 to 55, not all the way to the end of the book. 40 to 55 comes off as its own section, a sermon that is so evidently a sermon that most scholars don't think it's anything, in fact. When they argue about 40 to 55, they say it's a mod podge, right? Like any time a pastor gets up and talks. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's just kind of contextually driven by a theme. And once you catch that the theme is the servant of God, who God chooses and who will suffer, who is Israel the people, who will be one man, well, then 40 to 55 makes a little more sense. And then it's going to be in this kind of overall structure where it's emphasizing that even though things have happened to save, there's going to come a time again when they will need salvation again. But God already knows this. So just as he foretold the destruction of the north and the near destruction of Jerusalem and said, if you repent, it'll work out. So now he has a new story for the future. And it's about the exile. It's about after the destruction comes that you can't stop. And about what God will be and do for you at that time. And he calls it a new thing. The exile and its return is a new thing God is doing. And of course, all of this must shove forward to the cross at some point, right? Don't even miss that that's where I'm going. That Israel, the nation, is driving toward the one man who dies on the cross for the sins of the world. Israel reduced to one. 
Yeah. But Isaiah is given the big picture here. Look, I'm going to do a new thing. I saved you. I'm going to leave you for a while. You're going to fall apart. I'm going to let you fall apart. And I'm going to bring you back and it'll be greater than it ever was before. That's 40 to 55. If you go to 40 verse one and two, comfort, comfort, ye my people, says your God. That's also the theme for the whole thing. Although there's all sorts of not comfort sections. But what you see is that that two verses of comfort, comfort, there's two verses followed by some not comfort and sections that are like rotating waves of comfort, not comfort. Comfort gets bigger and bigger and bigger until chapter 55 is nothing but comfort. And that's the end of the thing. Like a sermon. It's a, it's a, it's a song. It's an oratory. Um, the, the, the scholar I read compared it to a sonata allegro, and he, he meant it. He meant literally, if you study sonata allegro, that's what this is. I don't know. But what we're going to study now is chapter 42, right in the middle. And we're going to get a little running start with chapter 41 at the end, and we're going to get some of chapter 43, because that's where it really comes home. Because what we have here in this movement now, chapter 41 is about God the creator. Chapter 42 is about God, excuse me, chapter 40 is about God the creator. Chapter 41 and a little of 42 is about God the master. And so God the creator, I made it. God the master, I know what's coming. And then chapter 42 to 44, God the redeemer. I know what's coming is I'm going to buy you, right? 44 to 49, the Christ sender. And that gets interesting as the Christ gets named by name, Cyrus, king of Persia. And then 49 to 54, 17, uh, the servant of pain. So in all of this, okay, God is creator. God is master. God is redeemer. God is the Christ sender. And the Christ is the servant of pain. Or more commonly said, the suffering servant. And again, the crucifix becomes very evidently a picture of what he did for us at that moment. All right, so let's just look at verses uh, 21 of chapter 41 as a running start, 21 and following. This will be on or around page 607 of your pew Bible if you want to go there. That's ESV, right? And I'm again going to be working in the New King James. If you've got your own Bible, that's awesome. So you see uh, 21 of chapter 41, 41, 21 says, present your case, bring forth strong reasons. Verse 22, bring forth and show us what will happen. Show the former things, show the things that will come hereafter. Indeed, you are nothing. Your work is nothing, right? This is all him saying that all false religions, he challenges them to do what he's about to do, which is to tell the future with the name of a man, Cyrus, king of Persia, as the foreshadow of Christ Jesus, hundreds of years before it happens. Come on, idols, try it. Go ahead, you dumb mute statues, try it. And he says now, I have raised up this one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name. And shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. So again, he's talking, he's referencing Cyrus, who's going to conquer Babylon, and then send the Jews back to the land to resettle as a picture of Jesus Christ, who's going to conquer this earth and send all Christians forward to the new world, the heavens and earth which comes on his return, into a paradise. Cyrus is a picture of that, the new thing coming forth, bursting out of Israel. He's declaring all of this before it happens and saying no one else can even see that it's coming. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know and former times that we may say he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. 
Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word? Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. So again, he's, he's not talking about Christians here, okay? Uh, he is talking about humanity. So you can put it under the category of original sin if you want, right? And, and apply it to yourself. You, you can. But what he's really talking about here is how, even though they've been saved from their enemies by armies of angels and their king has repented, they're kind of just going back to life as normal. And they're trusting in all sorts of stories that cannot save. And he's saying to them, that's the point. I let your enemies come. You cry out. I save you. And I let your enemies go away. And what happens? You turn your back on me. That's the point again and again. So he is going to create a man who won't do that. And again, he's going to say Cyrus is a picture of this. Cyrus is his own story. is a lot of fun. Cyrus is a picture of this, but it all tumbles forward to Jesus of Nazareth, who is the man God created to be himself. How's that work? Jesus is not created. His body is born of Mary. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, this incarnation. Yeah. But again, this is what's coming because there's none good enough to do it. We are not enough. We need someone more. So behold, my servant whom I uphold, verse 41 of chapter 42, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Now, though, no, I'm not going to be able to find it on the fly, but if, if you go back, this is not the first time the word servant is mes- mes- mentioned in chapter 40 to 55. So the servant has already been introduced, behold, my servant. And this servant is named Israel. So again, when this word, behold my servant, my elect, in whom I delight, shows up right now in Isaiah's mouth, it's not about Jesus yet. It is eventually, but it's not starting there. It's starting as being about the people of God, saved by God from Sennacherib, who are rebuilding Jerusalem half-heartedly. He says, look, that's my servant, in whom I delight. And we say, but they're going to be conquered, but they're going to fall away. And God's like, yep, and for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son. Behold my servant, this people from whom will come Jesus. And no matter whether they're faithless or faithful, generation in and out, he keeps the hedge on the outside so it funnels them down and they're stuck in Bethlehem the day he's born. Behold my servant in whom I delight, Israel of old, down to one in Jesus. It's going to come back and be about the good news that you too are God's servant by the time this is over. But let's, let's just stick with, for now, Israel, the nation, not the one currently constructed by the UN, but the old one that got destroyed by Islam, okay? Um, Israel, the nation, Caesar, and then Islam is a Christian version. Uh, that nation is God's servant to bring forth Jesus in time. And that's what he's saying in verse 1 of 42. Look, I'm not done with you people yet. I delight in you. I elect you. I choose you. Yeah, I have put my spirit upon him. And now again, the personification of Israel becoming one man who will fulfill this is very much there. And we absolutely should see this the way that Jesus treats another passage of Isaiah. When he sits down, remember, he opens up the scroll and he reads, all this is fulfilled in your hearing as I read it, right? Yes, 
Absolutely, this text about Jesus, yeah. But it's so big in Christ that it includes Israel before Jesus came. And you now, because you're in Jesus. You're in Christ. So anything that is true of Christ is now true of you. And you might get really skeptical and say, does that mean I'm God? And the ancients would say, well, no. But you're not not communing with God directly. You actually are communing with God directly. You are a member of the body of Jesus, who is God. So by yourself, no, you're not God. But are you more divine than the ants? Yes. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus is the one who the Spirit is put in to save. Israel is the one the Spirit is put in to bring forth Jesus from history. And you are the one who the Spirit is put in now to sing the praises of Jesus in the present age, to call out his light in the midst of the darkness. That is what brings forth justice to the nations here, right? So the whole beauty of this new thing, including the exile and return, is now is for everybody. You know what happened to Babylon when God moved the Jews there? It wasn't because they were the Jews and they're so awesome because they're Jews. It was because they're the people of God at that time with all the promises. And when he moves them out of Jerusalem to Babylon, you know what happens to Babylon? It becomes the greatest historical empire in the history of legend. Why? As I was studying about this text this week, Babylon's so fascinating compared to Assyria. And I, I, I got to do this. I got plenty of time. I'm going to repent. I taught you wrong about Assyria. All right? I'm going to roll it all back right here. It's just one point. You might even think, big deal, Pastor. But you know what? I think it's a really big deal. I taught you what I learned, which is that Assyria was particularly vicious. That part is true. <laughs> and that when they conquered you, they took you and they transported you to another place entirely. They took you out of your land. And I was taught they divided you up so you would lose your language and your family and your culture. They'd splinter you out everywhere so that you would not be able to, you know, cohere together and then join together and rebel, right? Like no freedom to assemble and that kind of thing. Um, as I was reading in a, a new volume that I hadn't looked at before, um, he, he made it very clear with lots of footnotes. I'm, I'm quite wrong about the latter part. Assyria was spectacularly wise, so what they did was, okay, so you got this big circle that is your empire. Just pretend it's a circle, right? And there's someone outside your empire that has nice water, good gold, um, healthy people, good flocks, and they're peaceful and you're a warmonger. <laughs> yeah? So you just go and you take it. That's how the world worked up until Christianity got in charge of kingdoms, by the way. So get ready if it's coming back. They just take it. So they would take it, and then different people would take it different ways. Some just kill everybody and take the stuff. Assyria wouldn't kill everybody. They'd say, don't fight, and we won't kill you. Come with us. Take all your stuff, move out of your house. All you together, family together, tribe together, town together, come with us. We'll give you a new one. Be just as pretty, but it won't be this one. And the big difference is your town won't have the same language as the town 10 miles over. Because they just kept you as little tiny patchwork quilts of cohesive units that they could treat as a, a quilt of iron because you couldn't rebel against them with your extended neighbors, but when they called on you together under their kingship, you could go to war. Assyria was, they knew what they were doing. Babylon institutes a new policy, and they also kind of know what they're doing. They're like, well, why spread it out? Let's just do it right here. So instead of transporting you like the northern kingdom's 100,000 probably Israelites, the lost 10 tribes, off in somewhere, not segregated, but kept as tribes, 
somewhere. They're gone now. How'd they breed into whoever? We don't know. 100,000. 15,000 from Judah are taken by Babylon, and they're not sent out to the patchwork quilt of iron. Instead, they're brought to the urban project of Babylon. You know what? We could use a neighborhood right over there. See, I mean, look out the window when you go out, right? There's like a farmland right there. We could scrap the farmland, build a brand new neighborhood. All we got to do is conquer Pecatonica. Conquer Pecatonica, bring them in, tell them they can't leave, and they got to start here. And, you know, we won't do anything as long as they pay us taxes next year. That's Babylon. Urban project development, bring in the immigration, put them in the downtown. It's kind of dirty. Some will die, but some will live. Hey, hey. Take a step back and think about your news for just a moment. Okay. Um, if you can read between those lines. Babylon, then, is going to take Judah in its faith and inject it. You see this in Daniel's life. Inject it into the civilization as a whole. And by the time that things are really going, Daniel and other Christians are running everything because they just are wiser because God is with them and God blesses them. And all the people who end up in Babylon in the urban project, by the time that they have grandkids, the grandkids don't want to leave and go home. They'd rather be in the city than go home because it's so good there because they're so blessed by the productivity that God grants to them there. Again, in Babylon. So that blessing that God sends to them, right? Uh, that's what chapter 42 is going to be about. That wherever he sends you again, he is your creator and your master. And then we'll get to the redeemer, right? He's going to bring you back, right? Um, that beautiful reality is ours now as a people, and it doesn't have to be as big as, say, we have to unite and call ourselves the LCMS and ask God to be a, our God and we will all unite. It's, it's more that wherever Christianity and the word of God is, whatever congregation or family or body you are in is, you may grab the promise that you are the elect of God, chosen and precious to bless Everything around you, while the world is burning down, in the knowledge that through those prayers, the good news of Jesus the King is going to increase. And people who desire light and dark darkness are going to come and want to follow that light. And again, God's going to say now in chapter 42, nothing can stop me from doing this, among a number of other beautiful things. Notice how in verse 2 it says, He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Again, this is Christ, this is us. The idea here is violence, I think. The idea is he's not a warmonger. He doesn't come in on a horse and shout, follow me. He does have crowds go out to him, and he will preach to the crowds, Jesus, right? Large, large crowds. And he will cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that, that's not what this is about. This is about a manner of being king. And he's not a king with a show. He's a king with a truth. And there's a massive difference. And his truth is so beautiful. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering flax or wick he will not quench. What is the beautiful truth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? It is mercy. It is grace. Now, are you broken? Do you have holes in your soul? He will not snuff you out. That's not his plan. And he promises it'll never be. 
And even when you think you might be, that's just the moment when he says, trust me, I won't. I will not. That's who he is. That's who God is. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged. How beautiful to know that Jesus doesn't get discouraged. It's easy to get discouraged, right? He doesn't for you. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Let me suggest to you, the coastlands waiting for his law is the promise that when pagans convert, Gentiles, non-Jews, when we believe in Jesus and we study the Bible and we pray the Psalms and we read the Proverbs, the law of truth, the gospel of the kingdom, all of it makes us blessed the way Old Testament people were blessed. Now, not just the future, not just when Jesus returns. We're walking toward when Jesus returns, but we're blessed now. And does that mean families that grow? Yeah. Does that mean herds that don't all die out? Yeah. Does it mean industry that produces good things? Yeah. Can you do that while doing evil things all along? No. No, probably not. Right. And so as we see a country choosing evil, and we have to segregate ourselves from it, and we watch that country see the curses that they bring upon themselves with that evil, we don't have to believe that's our future. We can believe we're different. We're called out, and, and there's more of us than them. There are more Christians in America than anything else. We just have to believe it again. Start acting like they can't push us around. I mean, we push back. We just don't get pushed. And there's a difference in that, too. We wait for his law. Right? We believe his word. His word is power. Verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, uh, God, Jesus, right? Who created the heavens, stretched them out, right? There's this creator motif. He's master of all. Who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. We could just go back to Genesis and talk about that, but we'll leave it for today. Who gives breath to the people on it. Notice the power again, though. He's in charge of everything, where you came from, where the stars came from, how you breathe, and spirit to those who walk on it. That's animalia, right? That's, that's breath in the sense that the animals have it too. He's claiming a sovereignty of incredible power with these statements. And he says this, the sovereign one, he says this, I, Jesus, again, Jesus is Lord, right? He's incarnate, Jesus is Lord. I, Jesus, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images." There's so much in here. Being called in righteousness, accuracy, justification, right? Justification by grace through faith. That's the call of righteousness in Christ. It isn't saying, I call you to be righteous. It says, I have righteousness to give you. I will make you righteous by the call. And that happens all at once in a totality that you may believe is complete. And also in a way that you get to watch it work itself out while you wait to go to rest in him in your death. He says, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. That, of course, was ancient Israel to Jesus, the New Testament in his blood that we will eat and drink tonight. But when you eat and drink this body and blood of Christ, you proclaim his death until he comes, and that is you being a testament to the people. When we meet on Sunday mornings and take the Lord's Supper, we testify to everybody driving by who doesn't show up, on Judgment Day, it will be seen. It will be known. 
We don't sit here on a corner blindly. They think no one sees. God sees. And we are on the path to his salvation. He keeps us as his covenant. How can I be so bold? It's pretty simple. The Bible, grace, and faith. <laughs> I can talk about the Augsburg Confession if you want, but sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura. It's pretty straightforward. The Bible interprets itself. Jesus saves by grace. And this is so you may trust him rather than fear him. You stick with that. It's kind of hard to go wrong. You can get heterodox. You can teach false things. Many churches right now are struggling because they've taught false things about man and woman for, I don't know, 100 years. And only at different points do people check out. Not everyone checks out at women's suffrage, right? Most people don't. Not everyone checks out at women's ordination. Most people don't, actually. Right? Uh, not everybody checks out at homosexual ordination. Most people do. It's an interesting thing that that's, we've watched that the last 10 years, right? But the point here again is, for us to say that we know God is with us is for us to commend ourselves to the word of God as our source of life. And to know that this is a grace he's given us to give us faith. And then from there onward we go. We confess the creed. Of course we confess the creed, right? So there's always more. But truth is simple. Truth is simple. He says again, you're a light to the Gentiles. We are for the world to see. To open blind eyes, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the song. Was blind, but now I see. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness, great epiphany kind of stuff there. But now when he says, I am the Lord, again, slow down for a moment. The word Adonai is not in the Hebrew. It doesn't say I am the Lord in the Hebrew. There's no Lord in the Hebrew. There's only Yahweh or Jehovah. You pick if you want. I like how that gets fulfilled in the name of Jesus. It's clearly a proper name. There's no question. It's not a title. It's a proper name. Call on the name of the Lord is not calling on a name. It's ignoring the name. And by the way, who took the name Yahweh out of the words? Well, wouldn't you know it was Sadducees, Pharisees, those guys. <laughs> right? Why do we have the Lord now? Well, because in the New Testament, it says Jesus is Lord. And that's so we would know that Jesus is Lord, not so we go back and never mention Jesus in the Old Testament. He's all through the Old Testament. I, Jesus, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another. My praise I will not give to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and now new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Right? So he claims to be their God. He claims to have an eternal name, which again is revealed and named as Jesus when he is born. Uh, at this point, it's Yahweh. And he says, just as I warned you about the destruction of Jerusalem before it happened, I'm going to tell you about what's coming next, right? And so what should you do? Verse 10, get happy, actually. Sing to Jesus Christ a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of, the, of them. Okay, so this is pretty key, right? So there's like a bunch of Jews living in the city, and he's about to preach to them the good news. He said, here's the good news. All you non-Jews, listen. That's it. That's it so far. There's no more. It's going to be more. But you, do you know where this is going though, right? Like the whole point of this, the new thing is he's opening this up. It's not just about the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob anymore. Even here in Isaiah's time. And we're going to see that when Babylon is blessed, when Persia is blessed by counselors like Daniel and other unnamed Christians, Mordecai, 
All the Christians who lived through that time and kept civilization going while the wicked kings did what they did sometimes. Again, there's so much wisdom for the road here in this. I hope you see that. Sing to Jesus a new song is praise we Gentiles. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabitants. Again, it's kind of like saying, you know, all the people with like facial tattoos and too many earrings and weird clothing walking around downtown, tell them to come to church too. What would that ha- what would happen? What would happen if a barbarian really did walk in? Let the inhabitants of Salah sing. That's not the Salah word. That's the pause. That's a place. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to Jesus and declare his praise in the coastlands. Jesus shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out. Yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. So while the servant, who is Israel the nation, doesn't raise his voice in captivity. Jesus, who is not incarnate yet, but reigns from on high, will act as a warlord in history to preserve them. So also, now that he has become incarnate, as one who does not break bruised reeds, he didn't come with a sword, but ascended to the right hand of God, the day of mercy in his proclamation of the gospel, he reigns with a sword over everybody else. Everybody else. And strict justice, although he's patient. So he lets it get out of control before he destroys it. He can destroy it before it gets out of control. But as it gets out of control, he's pulling brands from the fire the whole way. So he doesn't destroy it. But he does bring justice like a man of war. You think you're upset about a sex slave trade trafficking children through the United States? Maybe you're not upset. I'm upset. You think you're upset? How do you think he feels? You think he doesn't know? And when these individuals are perhaps members of government, world-renowned even, again, you do your own research, but I'm starting to believe more and more of this stuff. And it's not so much that I want to do something other than say, hey, Jesus, <laughs> you know, that guy who did that stuff or is doing this stuff or that woman, hmm? yeah, can you stop it? And, and Jesus says, I know. That's the thing. He's like, I know. You better believe me, I know. Let me give you some wisdom from the Old Testament here again. You know, the the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. What does that mean? When Israel's about to go into the promised land, out of Egypt, and the whole 10 were bad, 2 were good spies thing, it's their own fault they don't go in, right? They end up in the wilderness for 40 years, and God teaches them, and the ones die in the wilderness, their kids get to go in. That said, it wasn't like God was faking it when he was like, yeah, go in. But after they come back out, he's like, well, the sins of the Amorites aren't complete anyway. There's more they got to do. There's more evil they've got to complete. This also happens, I believe, before the exile, or excuse me, before they go down to Egypt for the famine. But in either case, the point of the sins of the Amorites are not complete is that God will look at a group who he says, they're done. They're out, they're over, they have abandoned me. I can't turn them back. They're too hard now. They refuse. But I'm going to use them. I'm going to use them for my glory and for your good. And that's, that's a wisdom. If you can see that, we'll open your eyes to this world in just manifold ways. When you stop thinking the kingdoms of this world are what God is trying to build, and realize he's not. He really doesn't care. But he will build them and tear them down in order to build his kingdom. He will do that. All right, that's, again, verse 13, like a man of war. Like, like uh I'll give you a kind of a level of it here. There's a horrible, horrible comment, but it actually is unavoidably true. 
um, made by, I'm going to lose his name now, the head of communist Russia after Stalin. There we go, Stalin. Stalin famously has said, uh, you know, a, a million deaths, excuse me, a single death is a tragedy, right? Your cousin, your mother, your friend, a single death is a tragedy. A million deaths, that's a statistic. It's right, because the news, right? It keeps coming and you just, you, just, you just turn it down in your head. It's not a tragedy the same way every time, right? Jesus actually has that view that Stalin has, but of the devil and of the demons, right? He considers every single human life, all millions, tragedies when they die. And yet when the horde has become the demons' slaves, he will again not consider it a tragedy to throw them into hell. He's that cold and he's that hot. He's not lukewarm, you see. And so I, I don't want to compare Jesus to Stalin too much here, but, but what Stalin did, he's a brutal man. He was a king. Kings make hard decisions. I'm not saying he was good. I'm not saying he was bad. I'm saying we shouldn't assume ours were so good at the same time. That's really the, the evil lie there, is that whoever we had in charge was all great because eh, we're Captain America. You know. uh, rewind from that reality and see that the king is going to raise and destroy empires with cold calculation for his people. He will destroy not his people for his people. And the miracle is in so doing, he'll make not his people into his people too. That's who he is. I've held my peace a long time, he says in verse 14. I have been still and restrained myself. He knows how to wait. He'll wait. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. The point of that is less that he is a woman and more that um, it's like a war cry of pain and rage and there's no stopping it once it starts. And that's the point there. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and dry up their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands. I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. So the language about the rivers and the pools and the dryness, this is not to say that like actually the earth's going to be rolled up like a scroll and thrown into the fire. That, that is true. But it's more, uh, it's, it's a poetic way of saying I'm going to turn the world upside down. I'm going to do more than you can ask or imagine. How would you turn a coastland, a river into a coastland? I guess you can imagine it with an earthquake now, but most people wouldn't have thought of that ever. Right? Only TV watchers would think that. I, he is going to do things we cannot imagine, like bringing the blind to see. Making darkness into light before them. That's not possible. How do you make darkness into light? Like the darkness is the absence of light, right? Well, that's what he's going to do. He's going to do a new thing. Yeah. Crooked places straight. There it is again. You, know, you can't make the crooked straight, but, but Jesus will. He'll make your soul pure and clean. Yeah. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf, look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect? And blind, that's the word complete there, shalom. And blind as 
Jesus Christ's servant, seeing many things, but you do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear. And that part gets a little, little bit more muddled and it, and it runs together like chunk, chunk, chunk. So uh, verse 16 continues this, this promise of how God is going to destroy everything else so as not to destroy you. When he lets it all burn, it's so he can save us. All right. And those, verse 17, who don't trust in that, but try to create some other picture of God that they can worship to stop God's wrath from coming, um, it won't work. That's verse 17. Verse 18. Hey, nation state of Israel of old, people of Hezekiah, you're not listening. That's verse 18, 19, 20. Israel, my people, you don't even understand what I'm doing. You're going to forget by next week. You know, Manasseh is going to come along. doesn't take long <laughs> and do some things. Yeah. Uh, and yet you are my perfect. You are my shalom. You are my complete servant. And through your flesh, Israel, again, the nation, the people, well, again, Joseph and Mary's lineage is going to come all the way down to Bethlehem still. Right. So they're blind. They didn't mean to do that. Someone said to me recently, it's really wise, you know, the future I keep trying to imagine, even if I get close to getting there, it's not what I imagined. So I'd be better off like not imagining it <laughs> and just kind of going, right? And, and that's exactly like how this was for them. They cannot imagine, having been saved from their enemies, that God's solution to everything is to kick them out of the city by conquering them again. How could they imagine such a thing? How could they hear that right now as Isaiah preaches it? And yet that's what he preaches. It's going to happen again, and you're not even going to understand it, but God's going to save you through it. It's like a father talking to his children. Yeah. Verse 21, Jesus is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will ex exalt the law and make it honorable. So just hear that in his word. Whenever you see the law called out by Isaiah or the Psalter, it doesn't mean law and gospel like Lutheran's talk. It means scripture. Okay? It means the revealed word of God, right? So he will exalt his gospel, you could say even. He will exalt his truth, right? Uh, that is his pleasure. His pleasure is that even when darkness and lies come and try to deceive and hide and destroy, his pleasure is to let truth shine brighter and prove itself. It always does. Lies are hard to keep. You ever try? <laughs> they're tough to keep. Uh, uh, but this is a people, again, they're not listening, robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes. They are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey, and no one delivers for plunder. And no one says restore, which again is like if, if you hear Isaiah's preaching at this time and you just kind of settle down in Jerusalem and build a vault, right? I'm going to build a vault, put all my money in the vault, and I'll be safe even though. See, it just doesn't work out that way. It never works out that way. In fact, more that you store up, the more that you try to protect, the more afraid you will become of losing it, right? And the more outside of Christ, you are but plunder. You are in fact plunder. You are making yourself plunder. <laughs> and remember, Jeremiah, I love this from Jeremiah. We did this last week, right? Uh, he who made you the prey, look, I make you the predator. He who makes the plunder becomes the plunder, and I make you the predator. The church is in a different place entirely. So once you're no longer in the game of dog eat dog, fight for more, hoard some, and try to survive, now you're a predator of a supernatural capacity. Even though you die, yet you're going to live, right? Yeah. 
Uh, this is the people robbed and plundered, right? They're snared in holes. They don't know. They don't know their own strength. They're hiding when they should be you know, dancing and, and proclaiming. Who among you will give ear to this, he says? Who will listen and hear for the time to come, right? Don't you care about your kids, he asks? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to robbers? Like, okay, so you're surrounded by your enemies. I've said this several times recently, right? You're surrounded by your enemies. You feel like now you, you, know, you can't fight back against the king of Assyria. Who did that? Was it not Jesus? He against whom we have sinned. Now, again, if you want to take a note card and make a note, read it again later. Write it down. Verse 24, excuse me, verse, um, yeah, verse 24. Who gave America for plunder and the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, to thieves? Was it not Jesus? He against whom we have sinned. We really need to hear it that way. We really do. And, you know, Lutheran Church, Missouri, we're, we're a small house. American Protestantism. For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Now, we'll, we'll just start with, hey, here at St. Paul, we believe in man, woman, and family. We're walking in his ways. We're set apart. We're different. But the Christian churches right now, post-2020, they're going to hang on to man and woman. Ah, we're all the same. They're not going to make it. Just not going to make it. Not as Christian churches. It won't happen. No. They will not walk in his ways. Nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore, he has poured out on him the fury of his anger. Notice him, the servant, singular, Jesus on the cross. He still takes it. No. And the strength of battle. It has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know, and it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. You know, the conflicts of uh, the, the ignorant Christian stumbling through life with the grace of God carrying you all the way, and then Jesus taking it. Who hit you? Prophesy, they say, right? He, he stands in our place. So all these words apply to him, even as they apply to us. Now, chapter 43 is where it gets super beautiful, and I wanted to get here to close today, right? So again, there are many who don't understand, and he's calling out about how you've been saved from what you thought was coming, but more is still coming. So trust in me, because even though you can't stop my plan to tear down evil things, you can trust that I've made you a good thing so that you will survive through it by the confession of the name of Jesus Christ. And 43 is going to drive this super home to you, the elect servant of God baptized into Christ. Now, thus says Jesus, who created you, O Jacob, right? Uh, backslider, heel grabber, trickster, hypocrite, you, he who formed you, O Israel, one who fights God, one who God fights for. Here's what he says. You want to highlight that first two words? Fear not. Fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am Jesus Christ, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It goes on, it'll say, I give Egypt as your ransom. That's that, you know, if, if I confused you with Stalin earlier, this is the point, right? He's like, well, I guess I just have to destroy Egypt so I can save you. They don't want to be saved. You do. Uh, that's what that part is. But you want to be saved. Why? Because when I just read those three verses, you loved it. There wasn't any part of chapter 43, one through three, where like, I'm not sure what that means. 
Like every part of it, you're like, I love that. And you were either like, that's me, or you're like, I want that to be me. That's the way it is. And it's both. It's both. You're going to flux back and forth between, I know I'm a Christian and uh, I feel so bad about myself. That's going to happen. But a text like this is going to tell you that it's not about you. It's about God choosing you, right? Fear not, not you redeemed yourself, but I redeemed you. Fear not, not you have come to me, but I called you. And notice by your name. There's a reason we have three names in American English. Do you know that it's infant baptism? Did you know that? That's why we have three names. It's infant baptism. Because they used to just call you like, you know, John, John's son or something like that, right? Or Tuesday, John's son, if you're from Africa, you know, uh, and because you're born on Tuesday, that's your name. And then along comes Christianity and, and Tuesday, John's son's going to get baptized. And they're like, well, we're going to name you Peter. I'm going to baptize you John Peter Johnson. That's how it happened, all right? So the idea here was that there was a time when everyone who was anyone who was connected to infant baptism, granted, there's a tradition that doesn't see the value of that. Uh, talked about that at the first sermon. Um, everyone who believes in infant baptism realized that this is when God calls you by name. Not when you're born, your father lifts you in the sky and says, I name you John Johnson and we shall call. And I mean, that's cool. I, I didn't do that. I should have. <laughs> um, but but uh, that, that's not the moment. The moment is when I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, John Peter Johnson. And that name, middle or first, families have different traditions, but that third name that gets added in is a baptismal christening name. And if you have one of those or a fourth name brought from divorce or from putting two names together at the end, that's all kinds of weird modern stuff. But the way we got more than two is baptism. I have called you by your name, you are mine. Notice when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I mean, <laughs> all the ice sees is water as we pour it. The flood came to destroy and eight people were saved through the ark in that water. And I quote, this represents baptism, which now saves you. Not as a washing of dirt from the body, but as the pledge of a clean conscience before God. First Peter 3, 21 and 22. In the name of Jesus. Amen.